invite you to turn in the Word of God this evening to Luke chapter 9, the Gospel of Luke and ninth chapter for our reading of the Scripture and consideration therein this evening as we continue through the Gospel of Luke. We are coming to verse 43. I'll read a number of verses from there. When they went through the background check I just mentioned there a moment ago, and you're always a little, like, what's, what's going to come back? Is there anything? Of course, I have an advantage. All my crimes are maybe done in other countries, and I don't know if, it, I don't know if I'm on Interpol or if it checks, you know, the international things, so I, I, I escaped fine. Thankful for that. Not inhibited in the ministry to our young people here in the church. Luke chapter 9 is where we are, as I mentioned, and we're going to read from verse 43. And we're going to see here tonight the humbling reality of spiritual ignorance. The humbling reality of spiritual ignorance. Let us read the scriptures from verse 43. They were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered, everyone, at all the things which Jesus did, He said unto his disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set it by him, And said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And we forbade him, because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us, is for us. Amen. And may God write His infallible Word on our hearts and instruct us tonight as is fitting for each of our lives. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord again as we look to Him for His help and His Word. God, we come tonight, every one of us so different, varied in the circumstances that find us here this evening. We pray that whether we be on the mountaintop or in the valley, whether we be prepared to receive the Word of God with right preparation of body and mind, or whether we are distracted by cares and concerns, feed thy sheep and feed thy lambs, we pray. Come this evening, shut us in. Give us the humility of heart that is necessary to receive the Word and cause those that love Thee to love Thee more. Deal with our sins. Help us in our graces. And grant, O God, that Thou wilt speak to those that are yet without Christ and need to be saved. We're glad that Christ will build His church. May we see that, O God of mercy, and help preacher and hearer. In these moments we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the purpose of discipleship? Why is it that there is such an emphasis in the Word of God on discipleship? Not just in the New Testament, where you're familiar with the whole idea of discipleship, no doubt, but also in the Old. The importance of teaching. We see that in the life of Abraham, that God knew Abraham would teach his children and instruct those that were under his care in his ways. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the importance again of of instructing our little ones and making sure they understand the Word of God. The purpose of discipleship in its most basic consideration is in order for the experience of the gradual erasure of ignorance. It is dealing with 
the problem of ignorance that there is in all of our lives. What if we could be born without the need for discipleship? If God could place us into this world and we wouldn't need to be discipled? Is it possible that a creature could be born and know everything it needs to know to survive and thrive from birth? Does such a thing exist? Well, it does. Maybe it exists beyond this creature. I don't know for sure, but I know it exists within this creature. Such creatures are called snakes. Snakes do not need any parental care. They are left to their own devices, and they slither off, and they seem to do all do well, do relatively fine in continuing on in their existence. And I find that interesting, that it was a serpent, of course, that came to Eve to convince her of her independence. This is one of Satan's tactics. He possesses, at least he feels to some degree, an instinct of independence and tries to peddle it to men in order to make them believe that they are also creatures that can survive on instinct. And of course, this is not something that's left to the garden. This is something that's right up to date. The modern mantra of, if it feels right, do it, or follow your heart, These are statements of independence, completely devoid of scriptural warrant, yet they are espoused by many, even some within the church. But our Lord Jesus would not leave his disciples to themselves. And in the passage before us, we have him addressing the ignorance of his disciples. Luke pulls together instances of their ignorance. As we ponder these verses, I think you'll find them very humbling, which is why I've entitled the message tonight, The Humbling Reality of Spiritual Ignorance. The Humbling Reality of Spiritual Ignorance. We are an ignorant people. And we find our Lord speaking to address this problem of ignorance in verse 43, 48, and 50. This is where He speaks. From 43 and 44, He speaks to them, 48 and 50. So He's addressing this problem. And I trust, as I've said already, that we will sense this is a problem within our own hearts, that we don't know it all. We don't have it all together. We don't understand everything we're meant to understand, and we are constantly dependent upon the Lord to teach us the things that we need to know. So let's consider this in a number of ways. First of all, their ignorance of Christ. Their ignorance of Christ. Look at verse 43. It tells us, they were all amazed at the mighty power of God But while they wondered, everyone, at all the things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples. So, there's a general ignorance. There is the crowd gathered here in the shadow of the healing of the boy. There is a crowd gathering, wondering, everyone, at all the things which Jesus did. There's an ignorance in that language. They don't fully grasp all that is going on. And so you have the statement at the beginning of the verse, they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. They're struck with astonishment. The, the word for amazed there is actually a, a compound word that means to strike out. Uh, It's a sense of this impactful experience. We've met this word twice already in the gospel. This is the third and final use in this gospel. Its first use is the response of Joseph and Mary when they find Jesus at the temple at 12 years of age. In Luke 2.48, they are struck by what they see. And then at the beginning of his ministry in Capernaum, Luke 4.32, they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power And now we come to this moment, and you see therefore a broadening out in the influence. First it's just Mary and Joseph feeling this, then it's those in Capernaum, and now it's a a mixed multitude of a crowd gathering there as he brings to an end and a close his Galilean ministry. They are being struck by the same impactful feeling. They were all amazed at the mighty power of God, and they're wondering. But what this brings to mind, and puts before us is the reality that astonishment is not enough. To be astonished at Jesus is not sufficient. We have this crowd struck at the amazing power of God, and yet though this be somewhat of a positive response, it is not a saving response. Men can have spiritual impressions without spiritual renewal. 
And I hope we understand that. I hope that we recognize there is more to the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts than merely a carnal response of amazement or surprise or even gratitude. We need to be more than thankful. It's one of the things, of course, you hear a lot today, to have an attitude of gratitude. This is helpful. This is healing to the mind. This is something that is promoted by even secular counselors today, an attitude of gratitude. And, and yet, what do we find with the, the Pharisee as he stands in the temple? What's the first words? I thank thee. <laughs> I thank thee. There was, there was a certain gratitude within his heart which shows you that the that gratitude must be on the foundation of an understanding of mercy. I must recognize my need for mercy before I can express true gratitude to God. And so the publican understood his need of mercy. God be merciful to me. And he went home justified and no doubt thankful for what he received from the Lord. So not every positive reaction is a saving reaction. You may meet, and you will meet, if you have not already, people that will express amazement at God. They will talk in high and lofty language as to how good God has been, how amazing He has been, the belief that God has perhaps performed miracles in their lives, or all sorts of testimony that would seem to express that they are believers, and yet... Time goes on and the true fruit manifests itself. Their, their wonderment at all the things which Jesus did peters out. Don't be such a person. Don't simply have a carnal response to the Lord Jesus Christ. It must be much deeper than that. But you'll see how our Lord turns his attention to his disciples. And this is where the ignorance is really what he is seeking to address. It is in them and so they're wondering, everyone, at all the things which Jesus did. He said unto his disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. Two things to see here. First, ignorance of Christ in light of divine sovereignty. Ignorance of Christ in light of divine sovereignty. That's what you have in verse 44. Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not. Now, our Lord Jesus says, let these sayings sink down into your ears. He precedes his statement with this. In other words, he is, he is seeking to draw in their attention and to get them to, to pay careful heed to what he's about to say. The idea of the words, the, the saying sinking down is to lay down or put them down in your ears. Lay them down in your ears. In other words, they're not to pass in one ear and out the other. They're to be laid down in the ear. They're to sink into the heart. They're to be received into the mind and pondered and understood. Really, we might simply say verse 44 begins with a statement where Christ is saying, don't miss this. You cannot afford to miss this. And what he tells them is something he has told them before. Go back to verse 22. You can see that of the same chapter. Verse 21, he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And he is elaborating on the same truth in verse 44. The Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. The one thing they must get is not a comprehension of the mighty power of God expressed in what they had just seen, but the mighty power of God that is going to be expressed in the cross work of the Son of God. He is emphasizing then that the essential truth that they must grasp is a cross-centered message. Above everything else that they understand, let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. You need to understand what's to follow, what's to come, what surrounds my substitutionary work. Now the reason the Lord 
draws attention to this is because we by nature struggle to give attention to the cross. If someone gets up and begins to preach 12 steps to a successful career, everyone's riveted. It's like this is the most important thing, 12 steps to a successful career, five keys to success at college or something else of that nature. People are riveted, preach the cross, and people are likely to nod off or dismiss it as something insignificant. Here you see the the, the fact of a a real spiritual warfare that goes on among in, in a world that is imperceptible to human vision. There's a battle going on. Christ here, you would think when he speaks that man pays attention to everything he says and all that he does, but on this occasion he is drawing attention to this essential work which is to come because he knows his people will miss it. They have missed it before, they're going to miss it again. Let these sayings sink down into your ears. Lay them in your ears. Lay them into your heart. The Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. Don't miss the centrality of the cross of Christ. Make it your study to know the cross. Young people, don't be afraid to lift books about the cross, to understand the cross, the significance of what is being accomplished for you by Jesus Christ and His propitiatory work upon the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't afford to ignore that. Your confidence in Christ will stem from your understanding of the cross. Your ability to deal with tragedy will come from your comprehension of the cross. Your power to help others will come from an understanding of the cross. Your ability to witness will stem from a comprehension of the cross. You need to grasp what Jesus is emphasizing here because... We have this problem of meditating upon, considering, and knowing these truths. And so we are told in verse 45, they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not. And this is why we said, ignorance of Christ in light of divine sovereignty. There were aspects to what Christ must go through that they didn't understand. And we ask the question simply, Could he have made them understand? And the answer is straightforward. Of course. He could have made them to understand, but they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them. And so we learn that there are things that we don't know because they are withheld from us. You see this again in Luke chapter 18. Flip over a few pages, you'll see it for yourself. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. We proceed further into the ministry of Christ and coming near the end. And 18, verse 31 reads, Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated and spitted on. They shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. He breaks it down. He states it simply. And yet, they can't see it. Now, we could surmise as to the reasons why. We could ponder and speculate and say, well, well why? Why? One of the obvious reasons that comes to mind, whether it's true or not, is simply this. If they fully grasped this at this point, then they would not have persevered as long as they would have. Though they would eventually forsake him and flee, perhaps they would have forsaken him much earlier. Perhaps they're they're thinking about the, the victory of Messiah, the kingship of Messiah, the rule and reign of Messiah was so dominant, as soon as they would understand him saying these words... They would imagine this cannot be the true Messiah. 
It can't be this way. So part of the ignorance is actually keeping them going along the same path until finally he dies and rises again and then they're able to see it and accept it. That may be the reason. I can't say for sure. But you have it also, the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. As Christ comes alongside, risen from the dead, Luke 24 verse 16, their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And then you skip down to verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they knew him. There is a sovereign revealing of truth. And so we consider this ignorance of Christ that the disciples possess here at this time in light of divine sovereignty. This is immensely humbling. I'm pondering over this, and the question that comes to my mind is, what truths is God holding from me? What things do I not get simply because they're being withheld? Is it possible? Yes, it's possible. Is it likely? Yes, it's likely. When you're just saved, it's wonderful because you know you know nothing. And you get converted and you realize, like, I, don't, I don't know the first thing about anything in the Scriptures. And you come with such a, a hunger and an appetite and you're, you're drinking it all in. And then there's a period, and I've always noted this, it depends at what point you're saved or whatever, but let's say you're saved around 20 years of age like me. For 19 I was. Get converted. Especially if there's been rapid growth or whatever growth there's been at that point. You quickly go into this period of spiritual adolescence. And so for me it was probably about two or three years after my conversion. All of a sudden I thought I knew things. And there was pride welling up in my heart. I was going to correct this person and that person and put this one right and that one right. And, and I call it spiritual adolescence because you know that's, that's a common trait among teenagers at a certain point in their teenage years. Teenagers, you don't have to be like this. Please try to avoid it if you can. But it tends to be that they get to a point in their teenage years or their early adult years and they begin to think they know everything. It's coming to mind the quote by, oh, it's just this, not coming to me now, where uh, there's a man who said that when he was 13 or 14, his dad was a fool, and then by the time he got to 21, he was amazed at how much his father had learned in the last seven years. <laughs> That's that's our problem, we think. We, we go through this, this, this period where we think we know everything before the Lord has to show us otherwise. So what have you yet to learn? Ignorance of Christ in light of divine sovereignty. But note also, ignorance of Christ in light of human responsibility. There is also a human element to our ignorance. You remember the rebuke of the Lord Jesus to the Two in the road to Emmaus. It's not just that they were, their eyes were holding, that they should not know him, and then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. But we're also told in Luke 24, verse 25, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He is laying a charge at their doorstep. You're being foolish and unbelieving. He is laying the responsibility at their feet. You ought to know these things. In a similar fashion, the subject matter here is that of Christ's atoning death being put before the disciples, and they ought to be motivated to understand what they couldn't understand. So verse 44, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. They should not have responded in that way. Their response, their human responsibility should have been, we don't get it, Lord. Help us to understand. We're not seeing it. We can't grasp it. We have no idea what you mean or what you're saying. Help us to understand. And so there is this aspect of human responsibility. They feared to ask him of that saying. 
And I think there is this element of human responsibility in the things we do not know. You think of the prayer of the psalmist. In Psalm 119, verse 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. That's the prayer of the people of God. It's not just in that passage, but you find it as one of the apostolic prayers in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there for a moment. You'll see the burden of the apostle in relation to the understanding of the people of God. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read from verse 15. Ephesians 1, 15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that, here's his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Do you see what precedes the elaboration of the things they need to know? It is an emphasis on the fact that this is all about knowledge. They need to have wisdom revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of their understanding being enlightened. This is His prayer. As He falls to His knees and prays for the people of God, His focus is on their comprehension. They need to know. They don't have it all. They haven't grasped it all. Their depths they have yet to plumb. And His prayer is in this understanding God must work, but this, this aspect of this the human responsibility, we should pray and seek from God's hand greater understanding. That's why I say there's an aspect of this that relates to human responsibility. They should not have feared to ask Him of that saying. They should have said, Lord, help us here. But I suggest what Christ was saying was not welcomed by them. As we have noted at other times, it was incomprehensible that the Messiah would be subjected to the will of evil men to suffer and die. Are there things you refuse to learn because you're so fixated on how something ought to be? Are there things that you hone in on and hold dear Despite what you have had put before you in terms of the Word of God, you just simply will not accept it because for whatever reason you have a bias against what it is that you're being instructed in. If the apostles had this problem, then we have it too. Let us not fall into this trap. And let us be very humble about the fact there are things we don't know. And unless the Lord reveals them to us, we will remain in ignorance. Imagine just for a moment how there may be things hidden from you that if only you understood would dramatically impact your life. But you're so unbelieving, you're so stubborn of heart, you will not Seek from the Lord that understanding and submit to the discipleship that is necessary. So He withholds it from you and you carry on in the suffering that ensues because you don't know or will not submit to the things that you need to know or follow. So we've seen their ignorance of Christ. This is our greatest problem. There's so much of Christ that we have yet to understand, as reflected in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1. So much of His power and His glory that we yet do not get. 
So constantly we must be looking to the Lord for greater light and understanding. Do, I mean, let me just pause before I move on. Do you come to the Bible with a deep longing to know more? Do you pray over the Scriptures with a deep sense of your inability to grasp the Word of God? Do you take time when you don't understand to pull out the tools that would help you? Do you turn to Matthew Henry, for example? Do you endeavor to grasp more? I imagine that if there was one just one thing that Christians would use in relation to their understanding of the Word of God, if it was just Matthew Henry's commentary, we would all be in a much better spiritual condition. If that was the only thing we had, if we were reduced to only one aid other than the Scriptures themselves, the complete commentary of Matthew Henry, we would all be much better off. Noted of George Whitfield, perhaps the greatest English-speaking evangelist, and maybe the greatest English-speaking preacher in one sense, ever to have lived, that he read through Matthew Henry's commentary four times on his knees, begging God to impart into his heart the understanding of the word that that dear saint that had gone on before him possessed. And that was one of the key tools that transformed his life and in one sense facilitated the power of his ministry. Isn't that amazing? I have endless books. Endless books. At least sufficient for me, mostly. And yet, a Bible, the Greek New Testament, Matthew Henry's commentary was really all that Whitfield focused upon. We have so much to learn. Secondly, their ignorance of self. Their ignorance of self, they don't know themselves either. Look at verse 46. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest? And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him, and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. A few things to note here in relation to the ignorance that they show concerning themselves. First, they argue about what they don't know. They argue about what they don't know. Then there arose a reasoning among them which of them should be greatest. They begin to discuss among themselves how they will all rank in the pecking order of God's kingdom. They have themselves already wearing crowns before they had ever carried the cross. It's amazing to think that the disciples fell into this and humbling to realize that we can do the same thing. This all, of course, was an outworking of their pride. They would have this, not just reasoning, but there's a kind of division that arises among them because of this. As I quoted recently, Proverbs 13.10, only by pride cometh contention. There's a contention that arises. Self-exaltation comes to the fore. They think they know themselves. They think they know themselves so well that they can have a discussion of which of them should be greatest. Oh, I wonder how they evaluated. I wonder how they debated the cause, their own cause. I can imagine Peter and James and John, they had a few things to say, didn't they? Oh, you didn't go up the mount. Or you weren't brought in to see, 
the raising of the dead, and all the other things that they could have elevated and said, we had this experience, you didn't. Clearly, we're high up on the pegging order. Others may have had certain remarks or looks from Christ that they said, yes, but you, you know when the Lord said this or that. Andrew might say, well, well, I was the one that brought you to him, led you to him, Peter. Without me, you wouldn't be where you are. I have no idea what they said. You can ponder over it. But the folly of it, the folly of them giving consideration to this. Their rules are reasoning among them which of them should be greatest. They argue what they don't know. They have no idea. They have no clue at all what they're talking about. Discussing things completely irrelevant. This is sin. I've noted it on a number of occasions in discussion with people that it has always struck me in reading through John Calvin's commentaries as well as his institutes that more than anyone else I've ever read, he is very conscious of the things that he doesn't know. And he quotes Deuteronomy 29, 29 more than anyone else I've ever read. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And he reminds more often than anyone else I've ever read that it is sin to peer into the things that God has hidden from our view. Well, these disciples had yet to learn that. And many of us do as well. Some of the students in recent days have been dealing with certain uh, subjects in relation to Christology. And one or two of those subjects, one might debate whether or not really we can be dogmatic about them. I'm not going to get into that tonight, but they will know what I'm talking about. There are certain things we cannot be sure about, but they are so sure. Reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. But note also, they rebel against what they do know. Not only do they argue about what they don't know, they rebel against what they do know. We're told in verse 47, Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart took a child and so on and so forth. What did he perceive? He perceived not only the subject, he also perceived the sin. In Mark chapter 9, where Mark records this event, and you may turn to it for your own profit, but Mark 9 verse 33, it says that Jesus came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? What were you talking about? It's this event. Which of them should be greatest? And in verse 34, Mark records, they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. They rebel against what they do know. What do they know? We shouldn't be discussing this. This is sinful. I, I hope I'm not wrong, but them holding their peace is an indication as soon as they were challenged by Christ that they ought not to have been talking the way they were talking that they were discussing something they were ashamed to say to Jesus Christ they were discussing. In other words, they knew it was sin. The Spirit of God brought to their hearts, I'm sure not just at that point when they were challenged, but even in the midst of the discussion, there was that little, oh, you know it, oh, child of God, you know it. Yes, even some of you not saved know it. That little pang of conscience when you're about to say or do something and you know it's wrong. But you do it anyway. You say it anyway. You carry on. Well, they did. They get pulled into the discussion, disputing who should be greatest. And as soon as Christ challenges them, them thinking that he doesn't know, thinking he can't hear, thinking he's not aware, what were you disputing about? And they all stand there silent. had that experience a few times in the classroom in school where something was going on in the classroom whether it related to one or two individuals or the entire class usually it was someone particular and the question would come from the teacher I remember one particular occasion I will never forget it he was one of those very sharp kind of military type teachers and he opened up the classroom and everyone walked in and we sat in class for a while 
and after about five or ten minutes, he asked one of the students about what they had done with their gum. Because he had noted as he had walked into the classroom, they had been chewing gum. And now the, he was no longer chewing gum. And I remember the tense feeling as he said, I wasn't chewing gum. <laughs> and tried to deny it. And then the moment whenever the teacher went and turned over the table or the chair, whichever it was, and there was the freshly stuck gum to the bottom of the table and the chair, and you thought, everyone sitting there in the class going, oh dear, <laughs> you're, you're so caught red-handed. But oh, to feel that sense within his own heart, shame in front of everyone. Well, maybe there was something like this among the disciples. They held their peace. So they're rebelling against what they do know. They, they know it's not right to talk this way. They know it's not right to brag, to boast, to make much of themselves. They know that much. But they like doing it anyway. And we're all the same. There's a little thing in all our hearts that wants to be recognized, that wants to be perceived as superior or better or more important. And you're going to fight that little thing to the day you die. It needs to be crucified daily. And as a preacher, I'm all too well aware of it as well. In a day where there's great attention given to celebrity preachers, where even the people themselves want a celebrity preacher so they can brag to their friends and talk to their family, well, we have this preacher. You, you should come to our church. Why would you go to that church when you could go to this church when you have this great preacher? It's so carnal. But thirdly, they witnessed something that they needed to know. Not only did they argue about what they don't know and rebel against what they did know, but they witnessed something that they needed to know. Verse 48. So he takes a child and set him by him and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Note in this text, first, that all members of Christ's kingdom are like children. Christ takes a child child that had accomplished nothing in life and basically says, stop discussing your place in the kingdom like you're something. If you're in my kingdom, you have to be like a child. And children don't have great accomplishments. They have nothing to brag about. This child, therefore, illustrates how people enter the kingdom of God. And the child's best attribute is the child's awareness an ability to depend upon another. That's the essence of salvation. And that's something that no disciple ever drifts from. True disciples of Christ are always conscious of the fact, like children, we are utterly dependent upon the Lord. And so we pray depending on Him. We're depending on His merit. We're depending on the shed blood of Christ, on the impudent righteousness of Christ. We're resting in Christ. We're like little children. We have nothing to offer. We don't have accolades. We don't have a, a CV that would impress God. We have nothing. So those who are truly in the kingdom, they come having nothing, bearing nothing, proclaiming nothing, boasting in nothing. They're like little children.
All members of Christ's kingdom, they're like this. That's his point. Sets the child in the midst of them, placing the child, helping them to understand that the child illustrates those who are true members of his kingdom. Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. That is to truly understand the gospel is to see that it is reflected our submission, our condescension, our humility is reflected in this child. He that is least among you all, the same shall be great. If you see yourself like this, that's, that's the most important thing. Secondly, that the ability to value the insignificant members of the kingdom is a mark of those in the kingdom. The ability to value the insignificant members of the kingdom is a mark of those in the kingdom. To receive the child is to receive Christ. To receive Christ is to know God. The purpose of this argument is to show the disciples that if they rank themselves higher than another believer, they rank themselves higher than Christ. And if they rank themselves higher than Christ, they reject Christ. This is a very humbling statement. This is designed to get at the pride of their hearts, their dependence upon themselves, their exaltation of their own perceived accomplishments. The ability to value the insignificant members of the kingdom is a mark of those in the kingdom. You look at every Christian and you receive every Christian, realizing and receiving them, understanding them, no matter how low their state is, you're receiving Christ. But the disciples, they were not receiving each other. They were rejecting in a sense each other. They were repelling the value of one another. They were competing with each other, which was putting them at odds. The complete opposite of what Christ is teaching here. Thirdly, that greatness is achieved by esteeming and serving others as more worthy than yourself. At the heart of this also, he that is least among you all, the same shall be great, is an understanding of Philippians 2, 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Let each esteem other better than themselves. That's how you achieve greatness. Even that text, there's a certain repelling in our hearts to esteem other better than ourselves. But I know what they did, or I know what they said, or whatever may be proposed. I was looking for ways to justify the fact that this text can't apply in this particular scenario. Oh, we have no problem with those we already esteem. We, we esteem highly because of some particular status or position or accomplishments we esteem them. But our Lord's point is not that they would esteem those who would naturally be esteemed. His point in this text is that they esteem those that would not be naturally esteemed. That's the sense of it. Esteem the lowly. See one another like little children. Receive each other in this fashion. So whenever you get into some dispute, you're going to have to keep this in mind. Amidst a dispute, how do you esteem them more worthy than yourself? I'll tell you, by the help of the Spirit of God, you're not going to do it yourself. This brings us thirdly then to consider their ignorance of others. Their ignorance of others. They not only have an ignorance of Christ and an ignorance of themselves, but they have an ignorance of others. 
Verse 49, John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. There are two dangers we constantly face. A naive broadness in our acceptance of those who proclaim to be Christian as well as a proud narrowness. We are not to be naive in evaluating others. 1 John 4 verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Believe not every spirit, but try or test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And so there is a combination of spirit, words, actions, associations that we can look at and evaluate in order to test the spirit of a person or even a movement. But there's also a proud narrowness, and that's what's on display here, a proud narrowness. First, they misjudged the man's love for Christ. We saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followeth not us. He was using your name, Lord, but, but we don't believe he really loved you, because if he loved you, he would be in our camp. He would be with us. I don't know if it's because John is feeling the heat of our Lord's words. I imagine, for what it's worth, that that's what's happening here. And instead of contemplating what Christ has said and illustrating with a child in front of him and for him to ponder just for a moment what it is to humble himself, instead he introduces a segue into a discussion about someone else rather than them. A distraction. I don't know when this took place. John answered and said, Master, we saw one. He brings up some historical event at the point that they should be contemplating what Christ had just taught them. It's like when you say something really important in counseling to someone or in discussion, you say something really important, and instead of hearing what you're saying, you can almost see it sometimes. You can see it in their eyes that they're thinking about the next thing to say rather than to actually contemplate what you're saying to them. They have no interest in hearing or listening or receiving. John may be like that because instead of listening, he immediately segues, diverts, turns attention away from himself to someone else. And he did so in a way that misjudged the man's love for Christ. I don't know where this man came from. He may later have been part of the 70 disciples, maybe, or just an anomaly used to further test Israel as a kind of miracle-working John the Baptist. John did no miracle. This man's doing miracles. He seems to be on his own. He's an anomaly. Whoever he was, he was used of the Lord to teach to the disciples that the Lord could raise up anyone to accomplish His work. He did not need the inherent powers in the twelve. This man in one sense functioned like a, a kind of Melchizedek, who forever was a reminder to the Levites that God could have a priesthood outside of the Levitical priesthood. And so it was here. The Lord didn't need the twelve. There were others going around doing work in His name. Accomplishing things for his cause, bringing glory to the Lord. But they misjudged. They misjudged the man's love for Christ. Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not. Don't stop this man. He that is not against us is for us. He's doing the work. My assessment is he is doing the work that he ought to do. He has a real, genuine, evangelical love. So they also misjudged Christ's love for the man. John answered and said, Master, we saw one. So it's not just him. We saw one. We were there. There was a group of us there. And we don't believe that you have any love for this man. In fact, we took it upon ourselves to express to him that he is rejected, that he is an outcast, that he doesn't belong. I 
I have no doubt this man had shortcomings. And in that way, he was just like the disciples that the Lord was addressing. And so it was for that man, as it was for the disciples, Hebrews 2, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. It is amazing that the Lord has a love for all and sundry who truly trust in him. One of the dangers we can have, as this text is reminding us, is a narrowness that we utterly reject anyone who isn't quite like us. Because they maybe do things in a different way, or because they associate with a different group, we are sore on them. And we love to, in some way, get it across to the world or to them. You're unfaithful. You're not like us. You don't really belong. The Lord has a particular favor for us, not for you. Really what John did was he fell into the same sin the Lord was trying to stop him from falling into. What was he doing again? He was measuring himself. They were all measuring themselves against this other man, believing that they were higher up in the pecking order. Isn't it amazing that the Lord Jesus Christ can address a specific sin And we're that dull that the next sin we commit is the very same sin. The same thing. Stop measuring yourself against others. Lord, we saw a man. What's wrong? What's wrong with us? We are so corrupt. We are all so corrupt, so in need of grace. And thank God we can lean into the fact that this man receiveth sinners and eats with them, and he is not ashamed to call his brethren. That he condescends to us all. Be very careful then. Be very careful in your dealings with others, in your evaluation of movements and individuals. Test the spirits for sure. Evaluate what's going on. But be hesitant. If there's a hastiness in your spirit to cut them off, or mark them as distinct and not of Christ, be careful. Because the Lord has had to address in all of our hearts, I think, a constant pendulum swing, where in some of us there is this sense of wanting to embrace everyone, and others of us we want to kind of exclude everyone. And we all need to be taught of the Lord. Oh, how history has shown this to us time and time again. How much energy has been expended by (laughs) Christians fighting and battling against each other. Good men expending untold energy to prove the other wrong. And souls perish. And there are weightier matters that need to be dealt with. He that is not against us is for us. That is the last word we have from the Lord tonight. He that is not against us is for us. So let me ask you, because the Lord ends with a very black and white statement, and it works both for and against. If you're not against, then you're for. So the question to everyone tonight is, where do you stand in relation to Christ? Neutral you cannot be. You can't claim this kind of neutral ground where life is really about you, but you have your ticket to glory, you've confessed your sins at some point, and you think you're on the way to heaven and everything's rosy spiritually. Christ is looking for a clear-cut division, a distinction in humanity. He expresses it clearly here. You're either with us or against us. 
Which is it? And so if you're really for us, then obviously you can't be against us. If you're really against us, then you can't be for us. There's no neutral ground. There's no place to sort of sit there and say, well, I'm a Christian, but I embrace all religions, and I'm happy for the Muslim to reject the divinity of Jesus Christ and imagine that they, along with me, were all going to heaven and everything's rosy. No, no, the, the Lord Jesus will not have it. There's this clear line of demarcation, and you're called, every last one of us is called to step out and put everything at stake for Christ and Christ alone. And should the world say you're a nut and listen, the world will call you a nut. And if you don't have within your heart such a conviction that these things are life and death, this is heaven and hell, then you're going to waver because you're going to feel that draw to be light. You want to be in the pecking order of human social status. You want to be received by a perishing world. You want to be accepted among those who are dying in their sin. You value their opinion. And Christ is, is, is here in his closing words at this point. He brings very strong language. Get your eyes off the world. Get your eyes off each other. Get your eyes on me. And ask yourself, are you really for me or are you against me? Because if you're against Christ, you're against the judge of all the earth. And you have no advocate on the day of judgment. Therefore, you will perish. I trust that that's not the case for anyone here tonight. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. Let me say to this body, I trust that we will, on the one hand, not become a naive people who will accept every folly under the sun that claims to be Christian, but at the same time that we will not be guilty of the kind of narrowness that our Lord Jesus despises. Let us love the brethren. Let us love the church amidst her many different colors and all her variations and distinctives where they are true on the essence of the gospel. Let us love them. Let us stand with them. Let us pray for them and desire the best for them as well. But for you tonight, look to your heart. Ask yourself, are you for Christ or against Him? Would you be willing to lose every last friend if it meant that that's what Christ called you to? You would deny every friend to have the friendship of Christ. Someday you may be made to make that call. Make sure you're ready now. Make sure you've slain that idol in your heart, that idol of acceptance of your peers. As Jesus said to the religious leaders, how can ye believe that receive glory one of another? In other words, you can't believe if you seek your glory from man. Lord, we are a very foolish people. I pray in this house it might be a house of discipleship. I pray that the ignorance that by nature we possess would day by day, week by week, be eliminated. Expunge it, Lord, by thy word. Teach us thy ways. Conform us to thy mind. Help us to love the truth. Help us to embrace everything that it declares, the comforting and the challenging. Help us, O God, to walk in Thy ways, to show our love by keeping Thy commandments. And should it be that we have to resign our friendship to the entire world, we might have our friendship with Christ. May we be able to do so. 
May we have already done so in one sense. That we have loved Christ. And we love not our lives even unto death. Bless this congregation then with a balance of discernment in respect of those that don't belong to Christ as well as those that do. May we stand shoulder to shoulder with every faithful servant and everyone that truly loves Christ and serves him. Make us a friend of thy people, we pray. Be with us in our fellowship. Strengthen us for the tasks that are before us this week. Bestow upon us wisdom and much of thy power. Bless the fellowship and those that go downstairs. Strengthen our bodies with the food that's before us. And continue, Lord, in this place to extend thy kingdom and build thy church. Here then, these are prayers. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.